Well, the text I'd like you to turn your attention to this morning is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. That will be our text this morning. We're taking a little break from the Mark series to look at these two verses out of Hebrews 13. And um, if you're following along in your Bible and you turn there, um, there is something distinctly beautiful about um, seeing and hearing people of different ages singing that song. At different life stages, at different, uh, there's different uh, layers of importance, I think, in, in the way that we can sing that and different uh, battles that we've been through and are going through in our lives uh, at different ages. But the same Christ is our uh, stronghold and is our hope. And so thank you. And it's okay that I was looking out and seeing people sing because we're not only singing to God, but to one another. So thank you for singing that to me and to one another, however old or young you are. Um, I'm going to read our text this morning and then uh, ask for God's blessing on our time. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these words and we trust that you have life-giving work to do in our lives through them. You have given us salvation through the seed of your word. And it's by that same nourishing power of your word that we grow up in Christ. We grow up in maturity in our faith and obedience. We pray that your spirit would use this word mightily in our hearts today through my proclamation. Give me faithfulness. Give me clarity. Give us all alertness and open ears. And we pray for those who are among us who may not know Christ yet, who have not turned to him in faith. We pray that they would see a glimpse, a very powerful and compelling glimpse of the covenant of Christ and the unshakable hope that's only found in him and that they would come in faith. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, here on this holiday weekend, coming off of Thanksgiving, some of us may be a little tired, it's a little unusual. I have good news for you this morning. This morning's sermon is not for you, it's for other people, it's for the rich. And you might be wondering, how rich? Well, don't worry, richer than you. You see, we're dealing with the topic of greed. And we all know that greed is only a problem for the successful and ambitious capitalists out there. The fat cats in their uh, tailored wool suits and puffing on their cigars in their uh, corner offices and high-rises. If any of them had bothered to come to church this morning, they would hear a sermon that strikes like an arrow into the heart of their sin. No, no. Despite popular perceptions... Greed is not a rich people problem. Neither is it a poor people problem. In fact, greed has nothing at all to do with how much or how little you have. So it is also with discontentment, which is related to greed. It's a product not of our circumstances. We can be discontented under the very best outward conditions. Or we can be content under the most blistering trials and pains, even amid desperate prayers to God. These issues then are universal. They don't have anything to do with your station in life. They touch on all of us. 
And at some point, I'm sure in the last week, every one of us has dealt with somehow or another the problem of a discontented heart. Now that would be true any Sunday, but now that we've entered the holiday season, we may be especially primed for discontentment. After all, this day is is straddled uh, between, on the one hand, we had Black Friday, and then tomorrow there's Cyber Monday. And then family gatherings around these holidays can become so laden with hopes and expectations that disappointments can devastate us. At the same time, just as John mentioned earlier, we're about to embark next week on a new equipping hour series about contentment. And so in a way, this sermon serves as a kind of introduction to that course. Now, some of you know very well in your own hearts the danger of discontentment. You feel that downward pull inside of you. Even this morning, unhappiness over an unmet need may be nagging at your soul and stealing away your joy. Others of us may not even realize the work of discontentment in our hearts. As we'll see, it can be tricky and stealthy. It can manifest itself in subtle ways. But this morning, God has a powerful message for all of us about these heart issues of greed and discontentment. So we'll proceed in three stages. It's kind of like we're digging deeper and deeper as we go. First, we're going to just examine the text and ask, what is God saying? Second, we're going to ask doctrinally, what is God teaching us here? What are the things that we ought to know and believe? And thirdly and finally, we'll ask, well, what should we do? How is God's word training us to live? So we'll look at the text, we'll look at the doctrine it's teaching, and then we'll look at the use we should put it to. So first, let's look at the text. What is God saying here? And this passage follows a logical sequence in three steps. The first thing the author does is lay out simply the instructions. The first half of verse 5. Then secondly, he gives a ground or reason for those instructions. That's the rest of verse 5. And then in verse 6, he provides a motivation that connects the reason to the instruction. So we're going to look more closely at each of those in turn. Uh, Again, there's an instruction, a reason, and then a motivation. The instructions, actually two instructions, in the first half of verse 5, both negative and positive. The negative is don't love money. And then a positive instruction, be content. So greed appears here in our text as the love of money. Right off the bat, we have an important insight that greed is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of what we love. And I mentioned earlier, we may associate greed with wealth. Isn't greed the sin of the rich? Well, not according to this verse. As John Calvin explained, the love of money has nothing to do with how much we have. He he writes, quote, They who are not content with a moderate portion always seek more, even when they enjoy the greatest affluence. End quote. Greed or love of money is a heart that never says enough. Proverbs 30 verses 15 to 16 gives us these four vivid word pictures to help us visualize the greedy heart that never says enough. It says there are four things that never say enough. The grave, the barren womb, the thirsty land, and a raging fire. Can you just imagine a burning forest fire here in California? No amount of fuel will ever satisfy that inferno. All it'll do actually is stoke the flames even hotter. This heart that never says enough is such a danger to one's life that the author says, keep yourself clean of this disorder. 
And what's the positive counterpart to money love? It's the other instruction, be content with what you have. Just as greed is a heart matter, so is contentment. Greed is one uh, variety of a class of sins called discontentment. Greed is discontentment in the particular area of wealth and possessions. But discontentment can take other forms. Again, the heart that is not saying enough. And the opposite to greed is a contented heart. The, The author says, be content with what you have. And again, what you have can vary widely from person to person and from time to time. That's not the issue. The issue isn't what you have. Contentment is an inward activity. It's a heart disposition that says, I have enough. It's a kind of resting of a soul who is deeply convinced of being well supplied. It is a heart that says, I am satisfied. Now this does not mean that our desires never exceed our possessions. And it doesn't mean that we uh, don't want things that we don't have and may even pray for them, may even take steps to obtain them. But contentment means that what we think we need and what we think we cannot rest secure without matches our present estate perfectly. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which will actually serve as a basis for our equipping hour course. And in his book, Burroughs offers this definition of contentment that is good enough to be worth its length. So hang with me. And you're probably just not going to be able to write this all down, so just make sure you listen carefully. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Or as John Calvin puts it more concisely, to be content is to, quote, acquiesce resignedly in one's lot. That means to rest peacefully in what you have. Contentment doesn't say resentfully and through gritted teeth, find God If that's what you desire to give me, I guess I'll have to take it. I guess that must be enough. No, it is a heart that is resting in what God has given. So that's the instruction. Don't love money, but be content with what you have. Then the second half of verse 5 gives the reason. The author goes deeper than simply to say, do this and not that. He provides a reason to replace greed with contentment. And what is it? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Godly contentment focuses not only on the things that we already have, but on the God who is our provider and protector. Godly contentment is not just like saying, I have a glass half full of water. It's the assurance that however much water is or isn't in the cup, I have a faucet in the kitchen that will refill water whenever I need it. Why can you rest satisfied in what you have? It is because God is with you. He will never leave you. And this promise quotes Joshua 1.5 from the Old Testament. There, God is calling Joshua to lead his covenant people after Moses' death. Those were enormous shoes to fill. The Lord did great and wonderful things through Moses in Israel. But here is the assuring word for Joshua as the new leader. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so our author of Hebrews looks at his Christian audience and says, 
The same God is yours, fellow believers. He's committed to you in the same way. And all throughout this book, he's been plundering the Old Testament for arguments to show that Jesus Christ is the preeminent one that God has given for our salvation. He's better than all the types and shadows and promises of the Old Testament because he is their fulfillment. He's the point of all of it. And so here he tells his audience, just as God said to Joshua back then, so he says to you in Christ, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But how is God's presence supposed to uproot greed and motivate contentment? How does this work? Well, in verse 6, the author connects these dots and gives us a motivation. Motivation in verse 6. He says, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is another quote from Psalm 118, verse 6. This is a psalm we heard in the Scripture reading earlier. And the psalmist, as we heard, is clinging to the Lord in dangerous times. He's facing threats from human enemies. Now, we might call someone our helper as a kind of patronizing way of talking down to them. Sometimes servants might be called the help. Parents of young children might include our little ones for tasks around the house and call them what? Mommy's little helper. That's not the kind of helper the Lord is here. He's our help in the way that a strong, wild city helps a refugee. He's our help in the way that an airstrike helps surrounded, outgunned infantrymen. It is the help of one greater and more powerful. The Old Testament often uses this word, help for God, but also it's sometimes translated as rock or strength. He is our firm place of support and safety. God's help banishes fear so that we can say, what can man do to me? And of course, the answer to that question is nothing worth being afraid of. Now, the original audience is facing the threat of persecution for following Jesus. That's why they're faltering in their faith and they're tempted to wander back into the safety of Judaism. If you just look back at verse 3, he talks about those who are in prison, brothers and sisters in Christ, some of their companions. Maybe they're next. And this might be what's fueling some of their temptation to greed. Can you just put yourself in those shoes? Some other believers are being put in prison or being persecuted. And so we can start imagining, what if I'm imprisoned? Who's going to provide for my family? And so the heart starts seeking more and more and more to feel safe and to feel secure in case of that future occurrence. But in comes the author here with a word that both challenges and liberates. He says, God is with you as your strength. You don't need to fear men. They can't ultimately harm you. And so you don't need to cast your eyes about for wealth and material means of security. You can rest now satisfied in what God has already given you. And you can rest assured that He will continue to supply. So that's the argument of the text. Uh, the, The instruction, the reason, and then the motivation. But now, looking at us, what is God teaching us here? This brings us to doctrine, the things that we ought to know and believe. And I'll give you one Uh, idea here one way to sum up the whole thing we're hearing in this sermon so uh if you've if you've been drifting off now let's let's uh perk up and and take note here and kids when you're driving home and your parents ask you what the sermon was about i recommend you tell them this god's presence frees our hearts from the fears that drive us to the love of money i'll say it again god's presence frees our hearts 
from the fears that drive us to the love of money. And I want you to catch three big elements in that statement, all of which we saw in our text. Our loves, our fears, and the presence of God. Those are the three items we're going to look at here. Our love, our fear, and the presence of God. So first, love. Every time the Bible instructs our behavior, it is ultimately going after our loves. And greed is a matter of what our hearts love. We tend to externalize these questions. We might think about greed by asking, how much can I take? How much is too much? And maybe you saw ahead of time we're dealing with greed in today's sermon. Maybe you thought we were going to deal with that kind of thing. How much is too much? But contentment never lies, again, in our outward circumstances and behavior. As Burroughs tells us, quote, The mystery of contentment consists not in bringing anything from outside to make your condition more comfortable, but in purging out something that is within. That's where contentment is found. Your problem isn't stuff. It's what your heart is doing. There is something false and disordered about our affections that we need God to cleanse. Because greed is caused by our twisted loves. We have these things, these material things that, uh, and the wealth that buys them that aren't bad. They're good. They're created by God for us to use and enjoy. But the problem comes when we fix our hearts on them. We latch on to them. Sin is always a matter of inordinate loves. Either we love the wrong things that we just shouldn't love at all, or we love the right things, but we love them in the wrong order, the wrong amount. They start overshadowing love of God Himself. And remember what Jesus said, the great commandment that sums up all of God's law is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is called the great commandment because every sin somehow or another springs from a failure to love God. And so it is with greed. We may obsess over this or that thing we want. We may feel anxiety to amass wealth. Uh, Money and possessions show their claim on our affections, not necessarily just by how much we buy, but by the volume of mental bandwidth that it occupies, the effort and time that we spend thinking about these things and trying to obtain these things. And children, I, I do realize we're entering holiday season, and I remember what it was like to be a kid and to be thinking about gifts that I might receive and gifts that I might want. And they can occupy a lot of your mental bandwidth, a lot of your attention. So I would ask you, just as you assess your life, everyone, what are we loving? Now, to see greed as a disorder love is in itself a very helpful insight. But for a remedy, the text penetrates even deeper into our souls. So the second doctrinal issue here is fear. Fear. Did you notice and did it strike you as kind of interesting that the text goes from loving money to promising God's presence in verse 5 to then calling us to say to ourselves, I will not be afraid. Isn't that interesting when you stop to think about it? We're talking about greed, but then suddenly we're talking about fear. Well, the original audience was dealing with persecution, and so the particular fear he cites is the fear of man, man's oppression. But in concept, this could stand for anything that we're afraid of, any power that makes us fear for the future. What can those things that I'm afraid of do to me? You see, fear is a primary driver of greed. Instead of just saying, what's wrong with money, love, God is going deeper to help us see what got us there in the first place. And often, it's fear. How does this play out? 
If you've ever carefully considered your heart in a discontented state, whether greed or other forms of discontentment, then you can discern how this happens. There is some dark future that we're envisioning in our mind's eye. There's some misery that we can see coming. And we imagine that there's a way I can set up a buffer. I can set up a wall to protect myself from that. And so this buffer, obtaining the circumstances that will protect me from this possible future misery, becomes my fixation. It becomes my source of life and hope and well-being. Perhaps we fear financial ruin and the discomfort of doing without the possessions we need. So we think ahead and we start obsessing over how to amass wealth, how to save money, how to protect our stuff. Perhaps we fear being lonely in the future. So our hearts fix on certain relationships that can protect us from that, whether it's friends or romance or family. We don't want to be social losers in six months. We don't want to be old and lonely in 60 years. So we obsess and grab at relationships. Perhaps we fear having an unimpressive career when many of our peers would go on to challenging and fulfilling vocations that our society applauds. We fear the feeling of the shame, the inferiority that we might have to face. So our hearts fix on academic achievement or career achievement. You get the picture. There's so many different ways this could be multiplied. We are greedy or we are discontent in a million other ways because we're fearful. And because the problems reside at the heart level with our loves and our fears, the heart is where the medicine is applied. So the third doctrinal matter here is the presence of God. I want you to picture in your mind a pair of those old balance scales with the two buckets. So, you know, the heavier side goes down and the lighter side goes up. Now, let's say the bucket on your left represents all the things that we think we need and don't have. And then the bucket on the right represents what we have. Okay, so we weigh these two sides against each other. If the scale tips left, then we are discontent. If the scale tips right, then we're content. If we're discontent, we... Uh, We can't rest until we get more. We're left wanting. But if we're content, if it's tipped to the right, we can rest satisfied in that sweet, inward, gracious disposition that Burroughs described. Now, some might say that the solution to contentment is to, to look at these two sides and to take a better look at what's in the right bucket and to notice how full it is. In other words, count your blessings. You're discontent because you don't have a Tesla Instead, you're stuck with an old beat-up Nissan. Well, just consider how much better your old beat-up Nissan is than having no car at all. Or having no wheels. Or no legs. Surely the marginal benefit of a Tesla is much less than what you already have in that perspective. That's the count your blessings strategy. And it is a popular bit of wisdom, and it does have some merit. But we've all seen too much by now to be fooled into thinking that that will be enough. What's wrong with simply count your blessings? We are talking about the deepest commitments of our hearts, our fears and our loves. And there is simply no end to the anxiety and worry that we are capable of, no matter what the objective situation is. We need stronger medicine than that. We need something heavier on the other side of the scale. We need the presence and promises of God. And that's why he comes to us with this towering word of assurance. And Christian, this morning, he is speaking this word to you right now. I don't know what you're afraid of. I don't know what you're worrying about. I don't know what unmet need or what future fear is agitating your soul. 
But the God who knows all of these things is saying to you right now, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And what stands behind this promise is the covenant bond that we have with God in Jesus Christ. If the old covenant under Moses was powerful enough to bring God to speak these assuring words to Joshua, how much more for us, those who are united to Christ by faith, the promises in the new covenant are better. We hear in Hebrews 8, 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much, as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. God's covenant is His arrangement by which He draws near to a people to form a relationship with them. And the covenant motto is there in Hebrews 8.10, I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is what Christ has won for us in the gospel. This Jesus who is the exact imprint of the divine nature we learned in Hebrews 1.3, who is the creator who upholds the universe and who also, as we learned in Hebrews 1.3, came to be a man and to do what? To make purification for our sins. This Jesus Christ, the God-man, gave Himself for us on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins to pay our debt and to reconcile us to God so that we can know Him as our God and He can know us as my people in this new covenant. And this covenant generates a powerful, greed-dispelling, fear-killing promise that He speaks to all of us who are trusting Jesus this morning directly to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so we can say in response to God, what can man do to me? What can anything do to me? But maybe by now you've been thinking, well, people really can hurt us. Circumstances really can fall apart. Poverty really stinks. Maybe you've lived it. Our health sometimes does fail. Our relationships sometimes do crater, leaving us sad and lonely. What about that? It's only the full scope of the new covenant that gives power to this question, what can man do to me? Or what can anything do to me? It's only the full picture, the assurance of resurrection and glory that we share with Jesus that can put all these fears to flight. Some of these disasters will strike us. Much of our path in this age is suffering scarcity, and waiting. Remember verse 3 of Hebrews 13, some Christians really were in prison. So what, says the author, you're heirs of eternal glory with Christ. Listen back in chapter 10, verse 34, he just blows off the doors of the fearful love of money. He says this, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Christian, you're an heir of the heavenly homeland, the city that's to come. Our God is and forever will be with us. And this is why we can be content even as we suffer today, because contentment flows not from outside circumstances, but from the wellsprings of our heart in covenant with our God. It is only and always the presence of God that will tip those scales toward contentment. Come what may, we can rest satisfied. We can say even with real tears and real loss, and real sorrow, I have enough. I have my heavenly Father. I have the covenant of Christ. I have the indwelling Holy Spirit. I have the forgiveness of sins. I have the promise of resurrection and glory. I'll see the face of Jesus. So that is 
the doctrinal things that we need to see here, love, fear, and the presence of God. Now, what use should we put these things to? What should we do? This is where we get practical. But it's still all going to be about our hearts, understanding and managing our own hearts. Christianity should have a practical impact on our hands and our feet and our tongues. But just as Jesus told us, all these things are an overflow of the heart. So that's where we'll focus. Two heart level instructions for us. The first is interrogate. The second is saturate. First, we're going to look at interrogating and second, saturating. So let's look at interrogate. You know, to interrogate is to, to interview, to ask questions. To gain real traction against discontentment, each of us needs to become an advanced student in his or her own heart. Many of you spent years uh, gaining education and work experience to gain mastery over a certain discipline. And you've seen the arc of progress from maybe introductory courses or on-the-job training to, to a place of deep expertise and understanding. The battle for contentment, just like every other virtue that we learn in Christ, requires each of us to become students of a far more important field, our own hearts. What is happening inside of us? If we see bad things happening in our behavior, or we keep seeing these agitated states of emotion, of discontentment and greed, patterns in our thoughts and words and desires, it's time for some self-investigation. And thankfully, our text suggests to us some diagnostic questions that can help to interrogate our souls when we notice this disturbed state of discontentment creeping over us. And these questions track with the three elements that we've already seen, love, fear, and the presence of God. So regarding love, if you find your soul restless, ask yourself simply, what am I loving? What am I loving? It is okay to want things. It's okay to pray for them. It's okay to take steps to get them. But when our souls aren't resting, when they won't say enough, here's what you ask yourselves. Soul, what are you loving right now? What are you so interested in? And it can be tricky because the immediate thing that we're thinking about may just be interesting to us because it's a means to something else that we really want. So we have to pull that thread a little bit and ask, why do you want that? And it may be because I want this. Even today, What heart loves are making you restless and discontent? And as we go through life, I talked earlier about different life stages. Our inordinate loves, the temptations here will shift as we move through life. The heart issues, though, are always the same. The objects could be money and possessions, academic or career achievement, physical comfort, bodily health, relational desires regarding, again, family, friends, romance, the opinions of one person or a certain group of people or just people in general, anyone? What is my heart treasuring? The second line of investigation is like it. It's about fear. What am I afraid of? Once we start to get a handle on what we're loving, what we're after, then we ask, why do I place such a great value on this? What danger do I imagine that it'll secure me against? Is it poverty? Is it loneliness? Is it shame? Physical pain? Exclusion? These fears are stealthy. They almost never declare themselves. But even as we've looked at the text and we've considered this teaching, you may have felt some pangs going off in your heart, the Lord identifying some of these things to you. Christian, what are you so afraid of? Why is that future doomsday scenario so unthinkable? 
And we all do this. We all find ourselves playing these dark and fearful videos of the future in our heads. We have these scenarios where the disasters that we're afraid of that haunt us, they come true. And we play that video. You know what's wrong always with those movies we play for ourselves? They're atheistic. God is never in them. He's never cast in those dramas. It's always just you and the cold, dark world and you're doomed to relentless misery and regret because you let the door swing shut on you all those years ago. Friend, Christ has won much more for you than that. You have a heavenly Father who is sovereign over all, who disposes all things for your good. And you cannot imagine the ways that His faithfulness and steadfast love will meet you, whatever comes. The third thing to ask yourself about is the presence of God. The third line of interrogation. What am I believing about God? Does God weigh more on the scale than our unmet needs? Does He weigh more than the fears that haunt us? What am I believing about Him? Am I believing that He's too small? Am I neglecting His almighty power that created heaven and earth? Am I neglecting the goodness of His purposes for me in Christ? Am I neglecting His faithfulness? It'll never leave me or forsake me. Am I simply forgetting Him altogether as though He doesn't count when it comes to the big things in life that really matter? What are you loving? What are you fearing? And how are you seeing God? Friends, let's resolve to interrogate with prayer and asking the Holy Spirit to give us insight, every disruption of contentment that we find in our hearts. So the first instruction is to interrogate. The second is to saturate. After interrogating, we saturate. We need to fill our hearts with truth about God so that we can see how much weightier He is than our unmet needs. Calvin writes again, quote, The source of covetousness is mistrust. Faith alone can quiet the minds of men. End quote. And this faith needs food. It needs fuel. And so in the covenant of Christ, forgiven of sin and entitled to call the Creator God our own, we are deeply secure and we have to be convinced of this. We need to see who our God is. Because if we could see who He is, we simply wouldn't be phased by those fears, the scarcity, our future dread. We could find true rest, just like Paul in prison. In Philippians 4.11-13 when he writes, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In any and every circumstance. And he knows what he's talking about when he says any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Is that a man who knows his God? Is that a man who knows the covenant of Christ? How do we get there? How do we learn the secret of contentment? We have these truths that we saturate our hearts in. We saturate our hearts in Truths about the character of God. We learn His attributes, His eternal unchanging nature, His transcendent greatness, His sovereign control over every detail of creation, His mercy, His love, His righteousness, His faithfulness to keep every word He's spoken. Then we saturate on the promises of God, given who He is. What has He committed Himself to do for you? And we've already heard many of them, but uh, we'll hear some again. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never change. He'll work all things for your good. And He's working all things in your life, every detail, according to His perfect will. 
He promises that He's using painful discipline to train you in the peaceful fruit of righteousness to be more like Jesus. That's joy. He promises that He's storing up an eternal weight of glory for you beyond all comparison. He promises that He'll one day raise you from the dead never to die again to bring you into a new creation without any sin or suffering or scarcity. Which of God's promises does your heart need to grasp to still the fears that you face and to wean off your heart from the love of these false places you're putting in? And then we need to saturate our hearts in the presence of God, that God is with you. We need to know this. We need constantly to be reminded of this. He is with you and He is the fountain of life and He is the giver of every good gift. Burroughs again, this indeed is an excellent art to be able to draw from God what one had before in the creature. To be able to draw from God the well-being, the joy, the hope, the life that we are used to getting from elsewhere to know our God is with us and He is abounding in these things. Can I unlearn these old habits of finding my well-being and my needed portion in the created goods around me? Can I learn to draw life from deeper wells, the sufficient fullness of the living God Himself, committed forever to me by the covenant of Christ, to be with me, to love me as His own, and to store up an inheritance of glory for me. God's presence frees our hearts from the fears that drive us to the love of money. Greed is not about how much we have. It's not about how much is too much. It's about the deepest activities of our souls, our loves and our fears. And so, the secret of contentment is to know God in the deepest places of our hearts. To know who He is. To know what He's promised. And to know that because of Jesus, He is ours forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your gracious, purifying work that You've done in our hearts today and that You are doing. We can't fathom the value of these promises that You are with us as our God. We pray that for all of us, You would be showing us areas where our hearts, false loves and false fears are betraying a godlessness. We pray You'd cleanse out of all of us and that You would lift up our vision of You, especially as You've shown Yourself to us in Jesus Christ so fully, the radiance of Your glory. We pray that You would weigh more heavily on our hearts so that whatever happens or doesn't happen, even as we pray, even as we seek You, even as we hurt, we would say in the deepest place of our hearts, I have my God, I have enough. Please, God, work by Your Spirit in us. Do the work that You mean to do. And if there's any who don't know Christ, we pray again that the picture of this new covenant would compel them to come to Him in faith. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.